Hello and welcome to Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, in a town that has hosted several famous persons over the years, none really holds quite as much sway as Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain. My guest is Brent Colley, who happens to be both an avid historian on Reading and neighboring towns in Fairfield County, as well as the first selectman of the beautiful Litchfield County town of Sharon. He'll share some incredible stories about the last two years of Samuel Clemens' life, years he spent in Reading at his Stormfield mansion. And now stay tuned for part one of Reading's favorite son, Mark Twain. As this episode is being published on April 21st, 2022, it marks the 112th anniversary to the very day of the death of Samuel Clemens at his glorious mansion Stormfield in rural Reading, Connecticut. Clemens, better known of course to millions as the humorist Mark Twain, lived his last two years of life in Reading. In all, the Missouri-born Clemens spent 25% of his lifetime in Connecticut. He had lived in Hartford for 17 years between 1874 and 1891. That's where he wrote some of his more iconic classics, including Huck Finn and The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Hundreds of historians have reviewed and cataloged Samuel Clemens' life over the years, analyzing literally every aspect of it. Now, we're not going to pretend to do that today, but we will feature one of the so-called Twainiacs in the Reading region, who will share many insights with us over this two-part episode on Clemens. A Twainiac, incidentally, is someone described as being a maniac about the literary icon. Brent Colley certainly qualifies as a Twainiac, and he wears that badge proudly. The Colleys have spent five generations in Reading, Brent's great-great-great-grandfather worked at the now-defunct Gilbert and Bennett Wire Mill as a blacksmith. Gilbert and Bennett was a thriving industrial presence in Georgetown, Connecticut back in the day. They needed blacksmiths because their technology was so cutting-edge that they had to literally forge their own machine equipment for wire weaving. Two generations later, Brent's grandfather, who served as postmaster of Georgetown, became an avid historian. He led walking tours to interesting locations around Georgetown and Reading. Brent would go with him. Eventually, he became as proficient as his grandfather in recounting the many fascinating tales the area has to divulge, and he tells those stories to this very day. And in one of life's twists of fate, Brent and his wife ended up moving from Reading to Sharon, Connecticut a number of years ago. Well, there he got active in local politics and is now finishing up his fifth term as first selectman. Brent Colley has done a tremendous amount of deep diving into Clemens and his years in Reading in particular. Much of what he has documented is selflessly shared online and it's well worth tracking down. Long before Clemens got to Reading, however, in fact at the very start of his literary career, there's a great story and Brent has it. In a way, it shows you just how far Clemens had to come, and it also shows you that he was human, just like the rest of us. Brent's story is about Clemens' very first published article. It was a great success, except for one small detail. Clemens had been in Hawaii. He had just tried his hand on a couple of different types of careers, 
none of which worked out. Well, now he was trying his hand at being a travel writer. While he was in Hawaii, a boat called the Hornet caught fire in the Pacific Ocean. Somehow the captain and most of the crew managed to get the damaged ship back to Hawaii safely. Clemens had been feeling under the weather and wanted to return to the mainland, so he decided to catch a ride with the crew back to California in their boats. Along the way, he interviewed the surviving crew members. Well, he realized after hearing their stories that he had a great story. So when he arrived in California, he went to Harper's Magazine, a popular nationwide publication in those days, to get his story published. He explained to them that, yes, he was Samuel Clemens, but he wanted a different name for the byline, a new name he had developed, Mark Twain. Well, in his autobiography, Clemens called his story my debut as a literary person. Here's Brent Colley. He's excited because this is his moment. The article comes out and it's great. Everyone loves it. But the name is like Mark Swain. Well, even the best of us has to start somewhere. There are many aspects to the Clemens story in Reading. For some of you who follow my podcast regularly, you'll know that my very first episode, in fact, featured an in-depth review of the Mark Twain Library. Brent calls that just one of the treasures Clemens left behind. Obviously, what he left with the Mark Twain Library, the fact that we still have the books that he originally gave to it. Plus, Brent notes an important fact about Clemens, not only involving Reading, but Connecticut overall. There are only two houses in the entire world that were custom-built for him and his family were in Hartford and, and Reading. I think that's significant. Among the many stories is Clemens' relationship with Helen Keller. Keller lived for many years, including her final years, in Easton. She lost her sight and ability to hear at a very young age. Her efforts to overcome her disabilities are legendary. Many people helped her along the way, and one of her good friends would be Samuel Clemens. There were two very important meeting dates between the two. The first was in 1895 at a New York City reception. A number of society notables had been invited to meet Keller and learn about her miraculous achievements. Keller was just 14 years old at that reception, and Clemens was 60. The second meeting was a three-day stay at Clemens' house in Reading, which took place nearly 15 years later, about a year before Clemens died. Keller was exceptionally bright and uniquely focused. She was aiming to attend Radcliffe, at that time the women's equivalent of Harvard. Keller communicated primarily by tapping out words with her fingers into the hand of her longtime companion and assistant Anne Sullivan, who went with her everywhere. Sullivan could communicate the same way back to Keller. Well, at that New York City reception, guests were told of Keller's amazing achievements and her desire to attend Radcliffe. The hope was that they would raise some funds to help her out. Afterwards, the guests filed out one by one, shaking Keller's hand. If they wanted to say something particular to her, they would tell Sullivan, who would then tap out their message into the palm of Keller's hand. Brent says that Clemens had a different parting method, but it didn't fool Keller. And he came up more than a decade later when she paid him that visit to Stormfield. He basically just pats her on the head and moves on. She said, oh, thank you so much, Mr. Clemens. Thank you for coming. And he says to her when she comes, like, how did you know it was me? And she says, I could smell you. Because he smoked like 
19, 20 cigars a day. Brent says that's how they interacted with each other, having fun and kidding around. Keller liked being treated like a normal person, and that created a special bond between them. Clemens had two favorite pastimes, playing the card game Hearts and playing billiards. When Keller visited him in Reading in 2009, Clemens offered to teach Keller how to play billiards. She laughs and says that, you know, like, you know, I can't play billiards. I'm obviously blind. And he said that he that she would play just as well as um, his friends. One of the more amazing sidebars of that famous three day visit was how Keller signed Clemens famous guest book. Every visitor signed the guest book and usually left some commentary as well. Well, after the death of Clemens' wife, Olivia, in 2004, he wrote a book called Eve's Diary. It was a satirical recounting in diary fashion of how Adam and Eve met in Eden. The final line read, An Ode to My Wife, Olivia. In the book, one of Eve's diary entries says that she hopes she dies before Adam because she feels Adam is stronger and could live without her, whereas she could not live without Adam. Well, in the book, Eve captures Adam's response as being, quote, wherever she goes, there is Eden. Helen Keller's guest book entry, which is in the archives of the Mark Twain Library in Reading, reads as follows, quote, I have been in Eden three days, and I saw a king. I knew he was a king the minute I touched him, though I had never touched a king before. He gets pretty emotional, and, and I can see why. Her death was really uh, damaging to him. And for her to recognize that and write that in the guest book was, was pretty large. Well, people sometimes wonder why Samuel Clemens spent his last two years in Reading. After all, he had a grand apartment on Fifth Avenue in southern Manhattan with guests pouring in all the time to see him. Why opt for the quieter countryside? Well, the answer, says Brent, was Albert Bigelow Payne, the man chosen by Clemens to write his biography. Well, Payne lived in Reading and not meant as a play on words. It was a pain for him to try to corner Clemens for meaningful time in the city. I think what happened was that Bigelow Payne, living in Reading, wanted him to be focused. And he couldn't do that in the city because obviously, you know, so many people wanted to be around Mark Twain at that moment in time. A large farm became available right next door to Payne, and he suggested that Clemens buy it and build a country house. There, the two of them could spend more uninterrupted time together. Now, for those familiar with the vicinity, the area of Reading in question, where Clemens would establish his roots, was off State Route 53, or Reading Road, up hilly Diamond Hill Road to Mark Twain Lane. Along Mark Twain Lane, there were three notable locations, all of which Clemens bought. The first was a house called the Lobster Pots. It was actually an 1800s farmhouse that Clemens gave to his personal secretary, Isabel Lyons. We'll have much more to say about Isabel Lyons in part two of this series. The second location on Mark Twain Lane was a large shack just behind the Lobster Pot that Clemens gave to his biographer, Payne. Well, it was supposed to be a getaway location from his house, which was also nearby. Inside this shack was a billiards table. The idea was that Clemens and Payne could shoot pool while working on the biography. Payne nicknamed his new shack Markland. 
Well, despite all those plans, there's absolutely no documentation to suggest that the two ever played billiards together there as envisioned. The third location was at the end of Mark Twain Lane, where a very long driveway makes its way from the two-stone-pillar driveway entrance up to what would become the fabled Stormfield Mansion. Stormfield was 6,300 square feet, 11 rooms overall, with four of them being bedrooms and five baths and three fireplaces. Stormfield featured a particular piece of furniture, too, a fireplace mantle. It was especially important to Clemens. He had bought it on a trip through Scotland with his wife many years earlier. They had come across this huge, intricately decorated mantle complete with a Scottish coat of arms and inscriptions. They had it installed in their home in Hartford. And then when they moved out of Hartford, they took the mantle with them. And five years later, when Stormfield was built, the mantle was reinstalled there. When Clemens died, his daughter Clara eventually sold Stormfield, and ownership of the mantle passed through the subsequent owners of the property for several years. Finally, one owner gave it to a local builder who placed it in his barn. It stayed in that barn for more than three decades. One day, the builder's son went to see Clemens' newly renovated Hartford house, which was being opened to the public. He saw that clearly something was missing from one of the rooms. That empty space in the living room was there. And they say, he said to them, what was there? And they said, oh, it was a mantle, a really nice mantle that they got from Scotland. And he said, it's in my barn. And, that's, and, he, and he gave it to him. Brent has been inside that Hartford house quite frequently since the Reading and Hartford groups that keep Clemens' memory alive partner on a variety of topics. He says there's an interesting aspect to that Hartford house, almost like a haunting type of presence that not everybody is familiar with. There are times when it it smells like cigars up there, and that's just bizarre. But it does happen. I've I've, I've experienced it. Like, it'll set off the smoke alarms, and there's nothing there. It's really crazy. In addition to the sheer size of Stormfield in Reading, Brent says that Clemens had access to modern communication technology. He had a telephone. I mean, he didn't like the telephone, but he had a telephone. And uh, that tells you, like, how advanced the house was for that moment in time in Redding's history. The house featured some modern amenities that were not widely seen in the early 1900s. You did have the copper water tanks in the ceilings, and you did have lighting, which was basically run through coal. The lighting was acetylene gas that was fired up by a coal furnace. Only one other structure in Redding at the time, a church, had such modern lighting installed. In fact, the lighting system, which made Stormfield stand out among all the other structures in Reading, comes into play in another way. In my earlier episode on Clemens, we detailed the crime that occurred when burglars made off with his fine silver. They had come to Reading via train from New York City, knowing the wealthy author had moved there. It was prominently featured in New York newspapers since he was departing from his Fifth Avenue apartment for the countryside. Well, when the burglars got off the train at the West Reading Station, they had to ask a local farmer where the house was. Brent says that just seems incredulous to him. How could they not find it? I mean, this was the only thing that was lit up on top of a humongous hill. In any event, they were caught and jailed for their exploits, and Clemens got his silver back. 
In a way, moving to Reading created a new challenge for Clemens and his longtime secretary, Isabel Lyons. Brent says that especially in the distant countryside so far away from the hustle and bustle of New York City, Clemens didn't like to be alone. Someone wasn't there to keep him company. He was pretty upset, and he was just, you know, the ultimate extrovert. And so Lyons was kept busy making sure there were always plenty of guests visiting Stormfield. One of the events that Lyons and the rest of the house staff had to organize was a great big fundraiser. As we spelled out in the earlier episode, Clemens had decided that Redding needed a library, and he was setting out to make sure that that happened. At different points in his career, Clemens had made some very poor investment decisions and had been deeply in debt. His good friend, philanthropist Henry Rogers, who had made his money in John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company, had bailed Clemens out more than once. Clemens always repaid him. One thing that Clemens always admired about Rogers was that he financed libraries. Brent says that when Clemens decided to pursue the building of a library in Reading, he knew precisely what he was doing. He also understood that the library and the library name would stand the, you know, the course of time. One of the first things Clemens did was to charge $1 per suitcase to all of the male guests who visited Stormfield. That money went directly to the building fund. Brent says that this was a sure winner in terms of raising money. I think he had like 181 guests in the first year that he was there. I mean, like he was like keeping a hotel. Like people would come and go from the the train station just constantly. Well, then Clemens decided to hold that massive fundraiser at the mansion, featuring his daughter Clara, an opera singer, and her musician husband. In those days, when cars were brand new and rare and many people still traveled by horse and buggy, more than 500 people made their way up the large hill where Stormfield was situated. People from all around came to it. I mean, why would you not? I mean, this house is something that you've seen from afar for a long time, and you've always wondered about. Now you have an opportunity to come and actually be in it. Another one of Clemens' good friends who also visited was Joseph Twitchell, minister of the Congregational Church in Hartford. When Clemens and his family lived in Hartford during the height of his writing career, Clemens and Twitchell used to take long walks and discuss the issues of the day as well as theology. In fact, Brent says that Joe Twitchell may have been one of the most important figures in Clemens' life, because he was able to convince Olivia Langdon to marry Clemens. Langdon of Elmira, New York, came from a very, very religious family, which didn't exactly describe Clemens in his early days. He was um, a ruffian to begin with, and so Joe was his opportunity to you know, show her that he was changing his ways. And Brent says it's fascinating to see how the many interconnections that seemed to exist in the Reading area in those days continued to surface. What's really interesting about, like I said, like these circles, is that his Joe's daughter Harmony married Charles Ives, and they lived like within two miles of where Mark Twain lived. Ives of Danbury ended up living in the section of Reading that is close to Danbury's southernmost border. So you had arguably the country's most famous author and one of its very top composers living within two miles of each other, with Helen Keller just a few miles away in the neighboring town of Easton. 
We're going to pause the story here for now. And when we come back in the next episode, more amazing stories about Clemens, his daughters, his secretary, who likely wanted to marry him, his business manager, and whether he tried to embezzle from Clemens, and the touching story of Samuel Clemens' very last day. That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path, part one of a two-part series on Samuel Clemens, better known as Mark Twain. I want to thank my guest for this episode, avid Reading historian Brent Colling, who also is first selectman of the town of Sharon, Connecticut. Please follow me at my main podcast website, amazingtalesct.podbean.com. Also, in between episodes, you can check out my Facebook page at Amazing Tales CT. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word with your family and friends. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. Thank you.